This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. I would get to the studio at like 7am, wedge, you know, 150 balls of clay to make mugs, make 150 mugs, and then leave the studio at 11pm, seven days a week for about five years. This is Home Truths, a show about the fascinating stories behind some of the most iconic pieces, movements and moments of modern design, revealed by the designers themselves. I'm Pip McCormack, and on the show today, how Jonathan Adler became, in his words, the luckiest potter to have ever lived, turning a talent for throwing clay on the wheel into a multinational design and retail company, creating the interiors for hotels, writing books sprinkling his signature charm and personality over his vast range of witty designs. The spaces Jonathan creates and the products he designs have been a staple in Living Etc. pretty much since we began. He's the man who'll think nothing of making some cookie canisters with the words LSD or weed emblazoned across the front, who has never known a furniture edge that wouldn't be improved with a glamorous gilt finish, and whose taste for the quirky and well-crafted bring a real flair to whatever he does. Listening back to this episode, I realise a couple of times I refer to a guardian angel or his charm as the reason he's so successful, simply because it seems from the outset that he's lived a charmed life, with big breaks and people rushing to work with him are characteristic of his career. But that does him a disservice, as his early days working all the hours possible to create his own pots. To his ability to make anyone feel glamorous simply by being in the orbit of one of his schemes shows he hasn't simply been in the right place at the right time but is busy with the talent to make the most of those opportunities too. A word of warning, the language is a little blue at times in case you're listening to kids in the background. But anyway, before this episode, Jonathan gave me five milestones from his career, which he thinks were key moments. And in explaining the stories behind them, he's going to tell us how he got to where he is today, starting at the very beginning. Yes, I have a very strange origin story that's probably terribly inspirational, uh, even though it didn't feel it at the time. I was 22 and sort of rudderless and wanted to figure out my life. And I, I spent a year after college at the Rhode Island School of Design doing pottery. And then I went to my pottery teacher and I said, you know, I think this is what I want to do with my life. I'd love to get a master's of fine art here. And she was like, no, you suck. You have no talent. This is not your truth. Like, nope, 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 nope. And so I sort of skulked off tail between my legs and gave up on my dream. It's very sad, Pip, but it's a very happy ending. I mean, do you agree with her now that it wasn't that good? Um, I think... In retrospect, it probably wasn't a great fit for that school. And I think it was because I wasn't really working in an academic pottery idiom. And I know that sounds pompous and absurd. And people are thinking like, what's an academic pottery idiom? But it was a little bit more serious than perhaps my work was. And I was doing stuff that was kind of inspired by fashion and culture. And I was obsessed with rap music and the kind of visual vocabulary of rap music and Chanel 
handbags. So I was sort of bringing in outside references and making teapots that were like quilted like a Chanel handbag and then had uh, a ceramic take on like bullion fringe like you might find on a tuffet and then gold chains uh, like Run DMC were wearing. So I was bringing in all these different cultural references. And I think that the pottery teacher was still trapped in a very insular ceramic world. So, you know, it was disheartening to the younger me, uh, but it was a good reminder to just like ignore the academic pottery world as it has ignored me. Good. I mean, I think that clearly it was far too avant-garde for for the audience at that that time. I just can't help it. I'm an innate avant-gardian. I know. I know. I believe it. So what did you go and do instead? Well, I went and I tried to work in the movie business and I started off in like, it's a classic story. I started off in the mailroom of a talent agency and then I was plucked from obscurity and became an assistant. And then I, due to my very loose morals and my poor character, I started sleeping with everybody in the office and immediately got fired and then um, repeat and got fired again. And then finally I worked for a movie producer And after about six months, the producer sat me down and was like, you're fired. So I found myself at probably 27, just unemployed and unemployable. And I moved into a new apartment and thought, you know, while I'm unemployed and rudderless, maybe I'll just make some pots so that I can have some pots. So why, hang on, why did you get fired from this last movie studio? Well, the first couple of times I was fired were definitely due to my poor moral character of sleeping with everybody in the office. The last time it was an all-female office, so that was off the table. But uh, it sort of revealed just how terrible an employee I was, how disorganized and um, just bad. Yeah, bad, a bad, bad, bad employee. And thank God... Yeah, well, I mean, I I read interviews with you about this time where you uh, talk about, you know, working 12 hours a day and listening to music and making your own pot. And I think perhaps that kind of ability to be by yourself and to be less structured maybe worked better for you at that time. It sounds so bohemian. Um, it, well, it, it was a funny moment. It was like I was 27. And I just, as I said, I wanted to make pots for myself. And so I started working at this little pottery studio in Hell's Kitchen in New York. And I would teach night classes. And in exchange, I got pottery studio space during the day. And suddenly, like a flip switched in my little brainlet. And I went from being kind of an unemployed and unemployable fuck up to being an obsessed potter. And I reconnected with my with my previous like love of clay. Only I sort of switched kind of my style, really. I I think I went towards a slightly more like functional pottery idiom that was less artistic perhaps, but more design oriented. And then I got an order from Barney's. I mean, how did that come about? Because, you know, if you're in your studio for four hours a day, how did Barney's even know to put an order in? It's a good question. And it sounds sort of like one of those, uh, you know, like, ta-da stories. Like, it sounds like it just sort of happened effortlessly. But what really happened was I was, I had been making all these pots, teaching night classes, and my parents, who had very kindly been sort of 
helping me out now and again, said, dude, you're like 27. You went to an Ivy League university. Either you sell a pot or you get a job. Like, this is not a thing. So I found these people, like these, these sort of groovy designers who had started a showroom. And I got in touch with them and they took me on and they connected me with a buyer at Barney's uh, who came to my apartment and looked at my work and were like, wow, this is great. And I got an order and then I, that's when I really went into overdrive and thought, all right, I have this one opportunity after sort of being a, a complete screw up for my early adulthood. Suddenly I had an opportunity to pursue the world that I wanted to pursue. And that's when I sort of went from being unemployable to being an animal of a potter. So what did those pots look like? What, what were you making at that point? They were totes groovy. They were sort of inspired by Murano glass and they were stripy. They were made from porcelain and they were quite perfect. I would throw everything myself and I'm, I have very, very, very few talents in life, but I'm a very talented potter like I can throw on on the wheel very very well and so I would make these pieces that had they were kind of these very elegant sort of gourd shapes that just had really fab proportions and silhouettes and then I would um, hand paint stripes and they had this they were really good (laughs) yeah I bet and actually not that far off from you know what I think of as your signature style still being today does it feel like the design DNA sort of started back then for you totes yeah I I Yes. I think I've always had a lot of the same design interests and concerns, and they've just expressed themselves in myriad ways. And I think if I look back at at those pieces, I was always very focused on sort of um, creating things that were a little like groovy and mod, but had, a, a, I hope, timelessly elegant proportions um, and were very like, it's hard to explain, but it's like, uh, yeah, they, they were not typical pots. And I do kind of feel like for me, those stripy gourd shaped pots were sort of the big bang of my design career. And I can look back at the rest of my career and sort of see, see the DNA in those pieces because I, well, to kind of put it in like a brand context, um, I call my style uh, modern American glamour, which is about creating design that is modern, aka new and uh, new, <laughs> and American because I am obviously American, and I think that my aesthetic and sensibility is sort of rooted in American optimism and glamour because I think things should be memorable and um glamour is one of those words that's very very difficult to define it's sort of a an elusive sprite of a word but i would say that glamour is about being memorable and having a sense of swagger and i think those pots that i made then definitely captured modern american glamour so yeah that was that was my big bang and everything kind of just followed from that. Did you feel glamorous at the time? Because I have such a romanticized view of New York in that period. And I imagine you kind of in, on roller skates, zipping around, like being fabulous. But how, you know, how did you feel? Did you feel like you were 
up against it or you know a, a young upstart or, or or what what was it like what was new york like back then um that's hilarious the idea of being a glamorous potter i would uh i would like to think that i have turned myself into a glamorous potter and which is almost like an a bit of alchemy uh because potters aren't typically glamorous but no in the beginning it was anything but i suppose new york at the time looking back that was 25 years ago uh looking back i guess it was different you know it was not it wasn't sort of all like slick and glamorous at all like I rented a space in a loft in Soho for $250 a month. Um, yeah, it was cheaper. There was a lot more crime. Uh, and there was just more of a sense of opportunity. I think that obvious, the main thing, obviously, was that there was no interweb. So that's, the, that's truly the seismic shift between them. Yeah. So I guess for you being in Barney's was really like such an important thing because you didn't have the storefront that Instagram automatically gives young creators. So being in Barney's presumably brought you a lot of notice. Well, I think that there the the landscape for launching a career has changed so dramatically. Like now, if you are a young designer, you can just make stuff, put it out there and find an audience, but perhaps not a huge audience. But there's no real gatekeeper. You know, you sort of own you own the means of sale, but it doesn't necessarily need to lead to a big audience. However, when I started, there were there were gatekeepers. You know, so there was a very limited number of stores. There was a very limited number of publicity outlets, magazines, and newspapers. And the real challenge was getting through the gate. And then once you were through the gate, you had a much better chance of making it. So it was harder, much harder than to get a start, you know, because Barney's would only take, say, you know, 10 people. So if you weren't one of those 10, you were kind of screwed. And then once you got your start, you had a better chance to kind of make it. Whereas now it's easy to get a start because you're in control, but the world is so diffuse that it's very hard to gain scale. Yeah, I think that's completely right. I think yeah, and, and almost anybody can sell their their wares online now. But how do you how do you grow that into a brand? I think it's so difficult for young creators these days. It's so difficult, and the irony is that now it's sold as as if it's completely attainable because one does see people in the world who have who have done it. But I actually think it's much harder now than it was when I started. You know there. As I said, there are many more resources available, both for production and there's so much more information and distribution and blah, 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 blah. But gaining scale seems impossible. And yet it's sold as if it's easy, but it ain't. Yeah. And I mean, I'm imagining for you, so things probably started to speed up quite quickly and you probably started to gain scale quite quickly because there's not that much time between Barney's taking your work and eventually you opening the store in Soho in 1998. So what happened in the interim and how were you meeting orders? Because presumably you weren't just in your studio listening to music and, you know, working 12 hours a day. Did you have a team? What, what, what no, I was I was kind of a one man band for a bit. I was a I, as I said, I turned into an animal and I have one real skill, which is I'm a very proficient potter. So I would get to the studio at like 7 a.m., 
wedge, you know, 150 balls of clay to make mugs, make 150 mugs, and then leave the studio at 11 p.m. seven days a week for about five years. Like wow. something switched and I went from being sort of an unemployable fuck up to being just a complete animal of a potter. I was fit as hell because it was extraordinarily physical and um, it was anything but glamorous. I was uh, very clay spattered. There was just sort of clay everywhere I went. And I don't know if you're familiar with Charlie Brown, the American cartoon series, but there was a character yeah. called Pigpen. And wherever he went, there was sort of a cloud of dust that followed. And I'm afraid that was me because clay has a way of just getting everywhere. So my poor, poor husband met me during those years. And I can only imagine um, the dust I brought into his apartment. Bless. So you outsource some of this to some people in Peru, I believe. Is that true? Well, yeah, that was sort of one of the one of the big leaps in my career. And I would say there have been many, many pivotal moments. I can't point to one moment where everything changed, but there have been many steps along the way that have been seismic shifts. And one of them was I had been making everything myself and my poor long suffering husband said to me, you know, like if you don't outsource your stuff, you'll never be able to grow your business and expand your work. And at the time, again, there was no real interweb. So I had no, I didn't know how the hell to do it. And by happenstance, I met this organization called Aid to Artisans, which was a nonprofit that connects American designers with artisans in the developing world. And they suggested I visit this workshop they were working with in Peru. And I barely even knew where Peru was, but I was just like so desi for help that I basically just hopped on the next plane and went to Peru and found a workshop that was like kind of a dream and a perfect fit for me at the time. And it was quite beautiful. And I spent a few months there and just sort of figured out how to get them to make my stuff. Again, I had, I think one of the somewhat interesting things about my career, and I'm not sure if it was good or bad, but one thing was I had no experience whatsoever. I came into everything as a true naive. Like I didn't know what, I didn't know how to pack and ship. I didn't know how to invoice. I had no business sense. And I came from a family with no business sense. So setting up this workshop in Peru was just me going and being like, huh, all right, what if I do this? I didn't, I just didn't understand business. And in retrospect, I'm kind of glad because it enabled me to create, I think, an unusual, authentic, and idiosyncratic company. And your husband obviously has a bit of a background in this sort of field. Is that is that fair to say? So was he giving you guidance and advice at all? So let's talk about my adorable husband, Simon Doonan, who is a Brit. He was the legendary window dresser at Barney's. Um, so when we met on a blind date, it was sort of a year after I'd been selling to Barney's and we knew who each other were. And I always fancied him and thought he was sort of a dreamy genius. And I was right. Um, but so Simon is a fashion person, a window dresser. Um, and 
Then when he was 50, he became an author as well. He just sort of wrote a book about his windows and discovered that he had a true facility for writing. And he's, I think, published his like eighth or ninth book, his memoir called Beautiful People, uh, published 15 years ago, perhaps, was... Um, I remember it being made into a TV show. As yeah, well. it was made into, into a BBC TV series, and it's hilarious. And he's English, and I'm an Anglophile. In fact, I would say I, in a world in which one can identify as whatever one wants, I would say I identify as English. Um, so We're happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, God, do I love England. So yeah, so Simon uh, definitely is like a fashion person, but he's not, he ain't a business guy. Like that's not really, he's a true creative. And so he was always a great support and sounding board, but he was hardly like a hard boiled business executive. Um, he's in the background here and he's putting a little snarl on his snout. Um, (laughs) But no, he was, so he's always like a, he's obviously a great sounding board and we always have been aesthetically, like we have sort of a lingua franca aesthetically that we were just sort of one, but he was a, I would say an amused and supportive um, observer. Okay. But he's not there doing your spreadsheets and kind of pushing you forward. Fair enough. Thank God he isn't. Um, he did not pass the 11 plus just FYI. Spreadsheets are not in his wheelhouse, but he turned <laughs> out to be a great genius. So take that 11 plus. And how did you get to open a store then? Because again, like if you're, you know, working 12 hours a day, seven days a week, or more than 12 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, how are you even having the time to think about making bigger steps? Well, I was penniless. And then I got an order from Pottery Barn. And so suddenly I found myself going from penniless to having like, I think it was like 80,000 bucks maybe that I got from this order. And... My parents are very, very risk averse. They were very, like the the whole idea that I was even setting up a business, albeit a teensy weensy one with no ambition was very alien to them. And they were very risk averse. And it popped into my head that I might want to open a store with this money. And I said to them, what do you think? And they said, oh God, that's a terrible idea. Whatever you do, do, do not do it. And so I thought, great, bingo, got it. I'm opening a store. Um, and as much as I love them, they are always, uh, whatever their business instinct was, I would always do the exact opposite. So that was the, that was the impetus. And I was, while I was not a, a, an experienced business person, I guess I always had good instincts. And at the time opening a store was dirt cheap and I manned it myself and yeah, so what was in it? What were you selling? What did it look like? It looked really cool looking back on it. I actually really love it. Um, it was a teensy store in Soho. The rent was $2,500 a month. And I, it was like pots. And then, all right, when I was working in the Soho studio that was 2500 bucks a month, I shared it. It was like a pottery cooperative. And there were a lot of very sweet potters who worked there. Um, But most of them were sort of cautionary tales because they were potters who had made something, perhaps gotten an order, and then just continued to make the same thing year after year. And their business went up and then it went down and they didn't respond in a nimble fashion. 
And so I thought, huh, memo to me, don't just keep making the same thing year after year or else I will, uh, I will replicate that trajectory. So I thought I got to keep evolving and changing. And I was very inspired by the fashion industry in that regard. Um, so yeah, so aesthetically I had said, all right, I'm going to keep changing, changing, changing. And I, so by the time I'd opened my pottery store, I had many different collections of pots. Some were super slick and glamorous. Some were very, very earthy and kind of England, English really in their, in their sensibility, like, you know, the stuff that a Cornwall potter might make. Um, and some were kind of poppy. So I did, I worked in many different idioms. And also I thought to myself, well, why am I only making pots? And I found these great weavers in Peru who were working their very artisanal, sort of extraordinarily beautiful craft, but in a very traditional aesthetic idiom. And I thought, huh, if I can take this technique and these incredible materials and infuse it with a modern pared down sensibility, um, there right, might really be something there. And so I started making pillows and blankets, and they were kind of great, I must say. I've always worked in the same palette. It's sort of like a clear, crisp palette of like natural with, you know, clear blue or brown or red. Like I like to keep things very simple. Do they have words on them? I know something that you're known for now. No, they were more kind of, uh, I'm trying to think of how to They were more sort of just very pared down graphics, like, half circles or a bullseye, but because they were done in this very artisanal way, they just kind of, it just sort of hit this perfect balance and they became a total thing. For some reason, they were just a huge thing. So my pots were a thing. My pillows were a thing. That store was doing great. Uh, and it was very unexpected and I didn't really understand what I had on my hands. I just was so in it that I didn't, I never thought about what it was. And what, what, looking back now, what, what do you think it was? Because, I mean, how was word getting out about you? And who was talking and who was, who was sharing information about you? And Again, now that I have a bit of perspective on it, I guess I was lucky to get a lot of publicity for some unknown reason I did. And again, it felt, I just thought, oh, well, that's what happens. But looking back, it was like a real coup. You didn't have a PR at that time then? No. Wow. I know. It all sounds like I make it sound a little easier than it must have been. I think it was a real struggle throughout. It was hardly easy at all. But um, no, I just was kind of a one man band. And maybe I was cuter than I thought I was. Maybe that's the answer. I think sometimes there are people who just kind of hit a cultural zeitgeist for whatever reason and the store is in the right place and they're in the right place and the designs they're creating are happening at just the right time. And the sort of there's an energy behind them that is hard to quantify but just happens and I think maybe that's what was going on for you it's you know life seems to have suddenly you know it, it moves so quickly you know just looking back at the stuff you were doing at that time um you know one minute you're kind of shopkeeping the next you're designing the fabulous Parker Hotel in the Palm Springs I mean that's a huge step change what happened there what happened in the interim there well, first of all, I think you're right about the cultural zeitgeist hitting the, the thing at the right moment. And I think the interesting takeaway for your listeners might be that if and when you're lucky enough to have that happen for you, you never know it while it's happening. So there's that. But then I think that 
as I mentioned before, I was working, my pots were sort of working in a design idiom and I was always up for a challenge and always wanted to keep moving like a shark. And a friend of mine asked me to design her groovy modernist house on Shelter Island. And I thought, okay, I'll take on an interior design project, even though I knew nothing about it. And that house turned out really great. And it got covered in the New York Times magazine. And the owner of the Parker Palm Springs Hotel saw it and was like, hey, do you want to design a hotel? And I was like, yeah. And I did. Jonathan, do you ever feel like there's a guardian angel just kind of staring down at you? Do you know what's funny? It's Again, if I were listening to this podcast, uh, it certainly sounds like it, but it was anything but linear and easy and guardian angelish. It was sort of a, like among these highs, there were too many lows for me to even enumerate. Like, you know, it's, it's tough. So I'm, I'm painting a rosy picture of how it all went down, but the reality is doing something like this is not easy. Um, not, I mean, I don't mean to complain. I haven't been, I haven't suffered, but it's just a, it's just a lot of work. And if, if someone had said to me at the time, like, if someone had laid out a roadmap of what it would be like and all the sort of risks and highs and lows and said, do you want to do this? I'd be like, um, maybe I'll be a lawyer. I think my my assessment is, for what it's worth, is that your designs are so fun that I think people kind of get wrapped up in what you do and want to be part of that. And I think you're such a great spokesperson for what you do too, because you're always so good with a soundbite and you're such fun conversationalist that people I think just want to support you and want to work with you and I think personality goes such a long way in a business like this where it's all about relationships so I think that could be part of it too is like people just want to be around you oh well mummy does what she can I interviewed you once and you wouldn't remember this. It was over the phone about 10 years ago. I was working on newspaper and I interviewed you once and we were talking about colour and how to use it at home. And you said uh, that you thought that bright colours were serotonin for the soul. And it stuck with me. And it was a line I use so over and over and over again in so many different ways. And I just think you're so good at making things seem fun and fizzy and joyful that I think people people want a piece of that. Well, again, mummy does what she can, but I would say that um, there's this famous English historian called Paul Johnson who wrote this book called Intellectuals, and it was about how there was a huge dissonance between what we know many public intellectuals, to like what, what they're known for and what their real lives were like. Like, for instance, Henri Rousseau, who was known as someone who believed in the innate, that we're all born... Um, born fabulous and then society destroys us but he was a monster he like sired like 30 children who all died in paris orphanages and so his sort of his intellectual legacy is very different from his personal life or karl marx who obviously is known as a man of the people but he basically had an unpaid slave his entire life um so his personal life was very dissonant with his intellectual legacy And I think that whilst I'm nowhere near in the league of those two great thinkers, I think that I am very different from how I appear. I probably seem sort of um, bubbly and fizzy and buoyant, but my truth is I'm a little bit Kafka-esque and very sort of brooding and very, very, very 
analytical and self-critical. So I think the takeaway from this is that nothing is as it appears. Oh, wait, my sweet husband just said, you're very sweet. Oh, thank you, sweet husband. I just want to interrupt this conversation to tell you a little bit about Harlequin, the high fashion fabric and wallpaper brand that takes inspiration for texture, colour and patterns from the catwalk straight into your home. Jump into Harlequin's book of little treasures, a magical collection of fabric and wallpaper, new for 2020. To find out more, follow Harlequin on Instagram at harlequinfw for inspiration and links to their innovative digital design book. Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour. So when you were designing the Park Hotel, this kind of analytical approach perhaps makes more sense because taking on a project as big as that, you can't just approach it as this kind of young, fun, fizzy person. Like you've got to obviously have a structure and a you've got to be all over everything at all times. I mean, it's a huge it's a huge hotel and, and you were doing the whole lot. So what was it like to design that? How, did, how was that experience? Um, that was really cool. And it was it was sort of just this extraordinarily creative project that was very stimulating. And when I did that, I kind of created a narrative, which is one way I like to approach design. Um, At that time, I thought to myself, all right, I have this huge 15 acre property in Palm Springs to work with. Um, What's the narrative? And I thought, I want this to feel like the estate of a fabulous um, sort of anti-meme type of creative woman and the estate would be eclectic and inspiring and infectiously exuberant. Um, And so I'd sort of spent, as I designed the whole thing, I thought, well, all right, it's going to be called the Parker. This, my muse is, is called Mrs. Parker. And I just kept thinking, well, what would Mrs. Parker do? And this fictitious muse became my guide. And that's still something I try to do in all of my design projects, uh, I try to cast my clients as sort of their most glamorous avatars of themselves and take that the, the way I see my clients, again, at their most glamorous, not as they are often, you know, bickering with me about fabrics and prices. Um, but then I try to essentialize them at their most glamorous and create the property that their most glamorous self would have. Um, And in a similar vein, when I'm coming up with new collections for a season, I try to create a bit of a narrative. And for me, my sort of forever muse is Jackie O. And she, if anyone represents modern American glamour, it was Jackie O. And so every season I send Jackie O to a different glamorous locale and think, huh, well, what would Jackie have? And that kind of informs my design process. Huh. That makes sense, actually, because I, I went to the Parker, like, mm, I think 2009, 10, maybe. And I remember thinking like, how gla- like glamorous it, it is exactly the word for it. Like it's glamour, but in a very, uh, well, I guess in a, in a Jackie O kind of way, like it, it, it's, it, it had nods to the Mad Men era, I think. Is, is fair to say and nods to the era when she was big and it just it made you feel like you were somewhere old school and Hollywood and wonderful oh good and I, I think part of that is like not being too slick by the way my approach is I, I when working on a hotel I sort of try not to make it too hotel nor even um, 
too slickly unslick. I prefer things to be a little bit, have a slightly improvisational and kind of casual feel and a very distinct personality, like very uncorporate. Yeah. And I think you were creating kind of Instagrammable interiors before Instagram even existed, you know, in the way that there are corners in, in Parker that you just want to photograph. Like they're just perfectly positioned, like the vases along the, the ledge is, you know, above the door. And, you know, there are just sort of moments there that are just kind of these fun little vignettes, I suppose. Well, that's something I think I learned from my, my um, display doyen husband, which is he's always rabbiting on about focal points. And I thought, oh yeah, focal point. So I think that when I think about the idea of a focal point, I, I do think about things as sort of a like vignette, like you turn the corner and what are you looking at? Where does the eye land? And I think the principles of composition apply to any and every aesthetic endeavor. So if you're creating a painting, you know, you might sort of create a sort of a taxonomy of important gestures and then the rest of the elements sort of revolve around it. And I think the very same paradigm applies to creating a pot. You know, what is the main gesture and then what are the echoes or creating a room? Like what are the, what is the main gesture and then what are the echoes? It's all the same compositional principle. And that's something I really, my husband really made me think about a lot. She's like Franny focal point. (laughs) And presumably at this point, you know, you're expanding quite rapidly you know you're not just a one-man band anymore I'm, I'm sure like how how big is your kind of staff or team at this point we're a couple hundred merry pranksters Whoa. Uh, but that's a that's an, around you know my retail stores and I also have a I wholesale my stuff I design it I interior design business and my main job is just to take credit for everybody else's hard work I mean I think that's the best job to have surely right I'm a natural I can imagine. But presumably, as someone who's not, you know, self-confessed, not a business person, managing, a, you know, a staff of 200 people, even if you're just taking the credit for it, and not doing any of the hard work, there still comes some responsibility there. I mean, how do you even begin to approach that? Well, now that I'm in my dotage, I have gotten very philosophical about it. And I sort of really am good at thinking, eh, do I really need to bother with that or not? Um you know, in the, during my pretty years, I was an animal and I was involved in each and every decision. And I was a like lunatic workaholic. And now, now I've kind of, you know, I'm in my fifties. I've kind of like pulled back a little bit and just focus on the stuff that I really need to. Okay. So jumping back to 2012, when you opened in London, what was the reception like? How did that all come together? It was a hit and I'm so happy and excited that I did that. That was sort of a, like opening in London is passion projects. It's exactly the kind of thing my parents would try to dissuade me from doing uh, because it's probably just a terrible idea to open a store abroad, especially since we're not like a huge corporation. Um, but I did it because I always want an excuse to go to England. I identify as British and it was just great. It's been a hit. I love to go there. That's one of the great sadnesses of lockdowns that I haven't been able to pop over. What What did you What What did the store look like when it first opened? I mean, I remember it. I remember the press launch. But but tell us, tell the audience what what it first looked like. Just like really cool. Um, 
It's on Sloan Avenue in Chelsea, and it's two floors, and it kind of just represents my whole range and and the aesthetic breadth of what I do, from the glamorous to the earthy to the poppy and everything in between. It's all my furniture and lighting and brass objets and other objets d'art, and yeah. I think what's really interesting about your brand now is that perhaps people see you very much as a figurehead of this kind of huge, you know, uh, business that, you know, makes furniture and makes objet and makes all these wonderful things, but, and, and does interior design and writes books and all these things. But I'm sure that, you know, people, many people don't know perhaps the artistry that's behind where you came from yourself, that it was actually you. I think that that's really different from just being the figurehead of a brand. Well, I think I'm a complete fuck up and I do everything wrong because I have I, I never have been good at doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. Like I probably should be more of a glad handing figurehead out there drumming up business, but my comfort zone is in the studio or working with my design team making stuff. I'm like a very insular person. Um I'm not terribly social, I'm not really out and about like working it as much as I should be. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think that being insular is good and bad. Mm. It's bad because it means I'm not out there pressing flesh and drumming up biz. It's good because it enables me to be pretty authentic in my voice. And, you know, ultimately, Ultimately, it's kind of the stuff I make that matters, or at least matters most to me. So in that sense, being insular has served me well. Yeah, you've still got time to be in the back end, as it were, like making sure that Ooh, things pip. to be. <laughs> wow. So uh, you're talking of being in the back end. I think, yeah. it's, I think it's quite fitting your next milestone comes with a seven-foot-tall bronze banana. Um, <laughs> So tell me about what it was like to go back to the parker and work on the refit, because, you know, I'm assuming, and this could just be me romanticizing the whole story arc, but there could be quite a good moment there of reflection of how far you've come since the previous time you had done it up and how things had changed and what your design aesthetic was now and what you what your beliefs were. And I don't know, tell me about what it was like to go back to the parker and do it all again. Well, hotels pre-lockdown, we're open 24-7, 365. So I had done the Parker and like 10 years later, it had been through a lot as we all had. Um, it had a patina, not unlike myself. And so I went back and just kind of gave it a rejuvenation and a refresh. And it was just great. It was my, the best thing about it was seeing that it really held up. That was kind of the miracle was, you know, I'm a very, as I mentioned, I'm very self-critical and I thought I would go back in and be like, oi vey, what was I thinking? But actually I was thinking a lot of good things. It was fabulous. And I just tried to take that fabulosity to 11. And one of the things that I did was made my sort of first piece of public sculpture, which was a seven foot tall bronze banana that is also a garden seat. So each of the peels is a seat. They're actually quite comfy and pitched perfectly. And it was kind of a feat of engineering and um, reflective of how much technology has changed. You know, when I used to make every single pot myself, it was me, a lump of clay and a wheel. It was all very, very elemental and uh, analog. 
And when I, when I made the banana sculpture, we used technology in that we made a scale model of the banana that was like sort of two feet high and tried to get all the details right. And then, uh, scanned it and 3d printed it at seven feet tall then made a mold of that and cast it in bronze so it was just an interesting change for me to take advantage of like digital technology um and yet make it crafty i mean just hearing you talk about 3d technology like that is just so far from think from you and your studio that we you know making pots by yourself for 12 hours that we were talking about you know not long ago It, it is it's amazing, really, to think how much you've achieved in your career. I don't know if you ever, if you can look back at it now and think of it as wonderful and successful or whether it still feels like you're in it and you're working hard and striving and got things to achieve still. Totes 100% in it. Um, never, ever do I, like, look back. I'm more grappling with the moment. Yeah. I have a question that I like to ask all my guests, and that's if they've ever had a master plan, and if so, how close they are to it at the moment. And I wonder if you've, if you've got one, and if, if you're close to your master plan right now. Um, L-O-L-O-L-O-L-O-L-O-L-O-L. Nope, 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 nope. No master plan. Bumbled along idiotically. Um, yeah, no master plan. I was talking to my mom about that the other day. Unfortunately, my dad died 20 21 years ago, unfortunately, my, my fabulous 86-year-old mother, um, I was talking to her about her life, which has worked out pretty well. Um, and I said, did you ever have a plan? And she's like, she said she never even thought about what she was doing for the rest of the day or tomorrow or anything. She just has never planned one thing. And she's just um, had good luck. I like that a lot. Um, Jonathan, we're going to move on to the last section of the podcast now, which is home truths. A quick fire round questions. Um, keep you on your toes. So, <laughs> what's the most fabulous thing that you own? Other than my husband, my most fabulous thing is, I know what it is. It's this painting by a brilliant artist called Ed Paschke, and it's a portrait of Sly stone from 1974 that was originally painted to hang in the playboy mansion that's so fabulous how did you come to own that um i bought it fair enough <laughs> mom just had a soup song of success and thought oh, i deserve a little treatlet so hugh hefner's not a friend is, is what no. yeah. <laughs> okay so tell me what was the last piece of homeware that you bought i bought an apple corer because during lockdown, I've basically become a prairie woman. <laughs> I cook and I clean and I darn my husband's socks. Um, and I'm constantly baking. And um, every day, Amazon delivers some new and ever more arcane bit of kitchen equipment that I never thought I needed that I suddenly couldn't live without. What have you been baking recently? Um, well, it's apple season. So, you know, it's apple pies and tartatans and apple cakes and baked apples. We're having a bit of an apple festival at the moment. Uh, Jonathan, where is your favorite place in the world? Ooh, favorite place in the world is probably Shelter Island, where I am right now. I can believe it. I can believe it. Give, give us a little glimpse of, into what it looks like. Tell, tell us, just sum it up in a couple of sentences how wonderful it is. 
so Shelter Island is a little heavenly slice of the Hamptons that feels a little bit more like the English countryside, to be honest. It doesn't really have the um, big dick energy of the Hamptons. Um, it's more low key. And it, the house that we have here is a house that we built 10 years ago. And it's kind of this low slung modernist kind of California meets Japan meets Scandinavia. Um, incredible house that we're very, very, very lucky to have with an extraordinary view and a swimming pool. And Simon and I are the luckiest potter and window dresser combo on earth. Um, because we get to live in this fabulous place. And our life here is like, we always joke that it's like a tampon commercial. We're always swimming and paddleboarding and biking. And, you know, the only thing missing is horseback riding. But, yeah, we're very, like, active and trapped in nature. And it's a dream. It sounds like a dream. It really it's a does. dream. Yeah. Hashtag lucky. <laughs> Do you have a motto for life? My motto for my work is if your heirs won't fight over it, we won't make it. So my goal in life is to make stuff that will trigger lawsuits between um, siblings in the future. <laughs> and lastly, where can people find more of your work or, or perhaps find you on Instagram? Um, the obvious place is John, Instagram at Jonathan Adler and JonathanAdler.com. Amazing. Well, that was wonderful as I knew it was going to be. So thank you so much for giving up your time. Oh, you are an absolute delight, Pip McCormick. Thank you. Um, and I hope I see you IRL soon. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Home Truths. In the meantime, don't forget to buy the latest issue of Living Etc. in the stores now and to follow us on Instagram on at Living Etc. UK and me on at Pip McCormack. See you next time. This episode of Home Truths is sponsored by Harlequin, the premier destination for inspirational design and colour.